This week on Myths and Legends, it's the origin story of Merlin, a botched antichrist who uses his evil magical powers for good. Vortigern's horrible, horrible decision-making catches up to him in the worst way possible, and you'll see how to catch some dragons. Just get them really, really drunk, and they'll go to sleep. Then, in the Creature of the Week, if you meet this creature in the forest, it'll give you seizures and maybe eat you. The good news is that if you know its name, then you can scare it off. The bad news is, as you'll hear me struggle later, its real name is nearly impossible to pronounce. This is Myths and Legends, Episode 6B, What's Red, White, and Fighting All Over. This is a podcast where I tell the stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Previously on the show, I started at the very beginning of the Arthurian legends, with King Vortigern seizing the throne through treachery and the princes Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther Pendragon, Arthur's future father, choosing exile to the continent over death. Vortigern's subjects hate him, so he settles the Germanic Saxons on the island to protect him from internal threats as well as his own people. They turn on him, and he's exiled to the Welsh Highlands, where he's trying to build a fortress, but it keeps collapsing. Informed by his magician advisors that the mortar needs to be mixed with the blood of a boy without a father, his men find such a boy in a nearby town. The child's name is Merlin, the future legendary wizard. We're going to sidestep the main narrative a bit today and fill in the background for this incredibly important character. Merlin's an interesting figure. He's the prototypical wizard, and he has an intelligence modifier so high that he always seems to be about three steps ahead of both his enemies and his friends. He's enigmatic and contradictory, a prophet and a demon, a baptized antichrist, a wild man and an advisor to kings. There are two main backstories for the wizard. The first is a combination of a Britonic bard that went mad and gained the power of prophecy and a Romano-British general. The second is the advisor to King Arthur that is a near-complete fabrication of Geoffrey of Monmouth after reading and interpreting the stories about the first two people. Myrden, the man Merlin is partially based off of, was a bard in what is now either southwest Scotland or northwest England, and he served one of those petty kings I talked about in the last episode. I'm not going to say too much about him today, because he's going to have his own little episode in a couple weeks where I'll tell his story. Generally, though, he was a Welsh warrior bard whose king lost a war. Seeing his friends dead on the battlefield, he snapped and went insane, running off into the forest and living there for some time. In his madness, he's given the ability from God to prophesize, following a common trope in medieval literature, and he lives at peace with the animals. He runs into problems, though, reconciling his peaceful life in the forest with that of the city with his family, where he's continually reminded about what he saw on the battlefield. Like I said, we'll go into that in a couple weeks. As for the Romano-British warrior, Merlin is based on him in literally name only. In earlier histories, the boy Aurelius Ambrosius goes to Vortigern, so Geoffrey of Monmouth swaps the boy out for this young prophet and calls him Merlin Ambrosius. No relation to the brother of Uther Pendragon, Aurelius Ambrosius, who is the character who's actually based on the boy sent to Vortigern. I told you all this was going to be a tangled mess. Regardless, Geoffrey of Monmouth's version is the one most widely accepted and the best place for us to start. We'll actually start with his mother, though. Adhen had a hard life for the daughter of a king. Her mother, it was said, had communed with demons and gone mad. Her mother strangled Adhen's brother and then killed herself. 
Her father, the king of Demetia, had fallen into a deep sorrow after losing his son and wife, and died as well, of a broken heart or grief or something, because I guess the plot demands that he be dead, and death by a broken heart, though completely ridiculous, is a common go-to trope for much of literature. His advisors began jockeying for power, and the one that took over the kingdom quietly pushed Adhan and her two sisters aside. One of her sisters had been accused of adultery and put to death, because it's the Middle Ages. The other married into a common family and faded into obscurity. Only Adhan remained in the castle. She was terribly lonely and began talking to herself in the empty corridors. To her surprise, the darkness began to respond. It was the voice of a young man, and though he never let her see him, he seemed quite kind. She thought that she was going crazy at first, but soon she didn't care. She loved spending time with him and having someone to talk to. They talked and talked, and the world seemed to feel a bit brighter. Time went on, and she closed her eyes, and she could touch him. Though if she opened them, she would see nothing. He was warm and caring, and she was glad to have him for company. She couldn't tell anyone, of course. Her family had been supposedly cursed and accused of consorting with demons. If she told anyone about him, at best they would think she was crazy, and at worst that she was going the way of her mother. They would think he was a demon. The kind young man begins to visit her in the night, and at first it's just to talk and spend time together, but one night he kisses her, and then more. Cut to candles flickering and curtains blowing in the wind. Weeks later, she finds that she's pregnant. Horrified, she talks to the young man, who responds, this time with an icy tone. Finally, he says, he was getting tired of listening to her grating voice about her sad little life. She doesn't understand, but he informs her that she will be giving birth to the Antichrist. Yes, he absolutely was a demon. The story starts out with a demon conference, where they decide that Jesus has really mucked things up for them, so they're going to try the same move, and impregnate a virgin to give birth to the Antichrist. For some reason, they sit on this plan for 500-something years after the birth of Christ, until this third daughter of a minor king in Scotland is born. She's shaking and weeping, and runs to the local priest who says that, Oh wow, of course, a spirit got you pregnant. It's not like he doesn't hear that once a week. But he could see that she was shaken and insistent. Demon pregnancy or not, it's obvious that this woman was in a bad emotional and psychological state, and she needed help. He hides the woman in the church, and she stays in the high tower so that no one, save a few of the more discreet nuns, knows that she's up there, medieval responses to women having children out of wedlock being what they were. Months pass, and it's the night of the child's birth. Adhan struggles, and finally, he's born. Instead of crying, though, she hears snarling. She looks down to see a grotesque humanoid lashing out at the nuns. They hold the baby down and scream for the priest. The priest rushes in with baptismal waters and, actually surprised that it's a demon, quickly baptizes the thing. It responds with shrieks and screams at first, but quickly calms down. They swaddle it, and it sleeps that night in Adhan's arms. The next morning, when she looks down, she sees a normal human-looking baby the baptism having completely expelled the demon half of him. She thanks the priest and names the baby Merlin. So it seems that the demons really didn't think things through. Yes, they deceived a woman and got her pregnant, but then tell this deeply religious woman that she'll be giving birth to this bond of the devil, and there's nothing she can do about it, except baptizing him, which will scuttle this plan and turn completely normal. Yes, 
baptizing, that thing that they did to literally every baby born to even nominally Christian parents in the Middle Ages, then the demons just kind of give up. Like I said, they really didn't think this through. Years pass, and it's obvious that this Merlin is no normal child, his supernatural parentage having had an effect on him. He finds that he's very talented with magic, and he can make alarmingly accurate prophecies. He's like the character's Blade or Hellboy. He was born with an evil power, but he uses it for good. Mostly. Like anything having to do with these legends, it's all about what sources you read. The priest uses his clout in the community so that Adhan and Merlin are not put to death, but she still is greatly shamed. The king agrees to let her live in the church, and she takes the vows of a nun. Merlin is cared for by the order, and the priest could see something special in him. It begins a book of the young man's prophecies. Years later, and even though Adhan is perhaps as non-threatening as a person can be, the political intrigue follows her. Her son, though illegitimate, is the son of a princess and the grandson of the last king. If there was going to be someone to rally forces against the current petty king, they would get behind the young Merlin. The priest could see what was going on, and, in the night, sent the boy and his mother to a monastery in Wales, far to the south. This is where Vortigern's men chance upon the boy when they're looking for what is essentially a human sacrifice to complete, or even start, their tower. One man goes to find the mother in the monastery to confirm that the boy is fatherless. The other one goes to get Merlin. He's unnerved when the boy, his eyes seemingly looking through the soldier, says, Take me to King Vortigern. The mother's quiet about Merlin's parentage, so they go to the reigning governor, who confirms that Merlin does not have a father. Something's off, though, so they take both mother and son back to King Vortigern and his magicians, so they can question them and figure out the true story. In one telling, on the way back, the seven-year-old Merlin passes a peasant who's carrying his shoes and leather he bought in order to mend them. Merlin laughs to himself because the man will die before he reaches home, and he'll be unable to fix his shoes. Hilarious. And then they pass a father, kneeling next to a headstone on recently packed dirt. He's sobbing uncontrollably, and Merlin again laughs because he knows that the son the father is weeping over is actually the son of a local priest. There's no attempt to explain these things in the story, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Even though Merlin has the ability to do magic, prophesize, and knows the past, present, and future of things, it's not super defined. In a prophecy coming up soon, he tells Vortigern that he doesn't know how a certain event will happen, just that it will happen. I think that's what goes on here. With the peasant, he doesn't know how, when, or where the man will die, just that he'll die before he reaches home. If he went to the man with this information, he wouldn't be able to provide any proof of the matter other than that he was a seven-year-old who was begotten by a demon. The man would, at least, dismiss it out of hand and continue on to his death. Or, maybe he meets up with the troop of soldiers out fighting for a petty king, or the Saxons, and he's immediately pressed in service, unable to go home. He could spend years traveling around the countryside, fighting on behalf of a king and growing in renown, dying at an old age in a far-off land, not ever wishing to return to the hovel in which he grew up. Merlin only knows that the man will die before he reaches home. Likewise with the man by the headstone. Merlin just knows that the priest fathered the child, but has no proof. To tell the father likely wouldn't ease his grief at all, because he still raised the boy, and to him the boy was his son. He would either ignore it, or the baseless allegation would destroy what little family the man has left. 
I can only guess that Merlin laughs at these things because he sees the deep irony in everyday life. That, or he's just a jerk. Sometimes in these stories, Merlin can just be a harsh, unforgiving jerk, so let's not give him too much credit. Also, he's seven years old, so there's that. They pass the crumbled wall and arrive at Vortigern's camp. Merlin knows why the wall can't be built. They're brought before the king and his magicians. Sitting in front of Vortigern in his tent, Adhin's hand is trembling. The king is flanked on either side by his magicians, but he can't seem to intimidate the boy they're set to kill. Rather, he's rattled by the seven-year-old's steady gaze. The king starts out by questioning Adhan about the nature of Merlin's birth, and though she's reticent at first, he's able to tease out all the details. He consults with his magicians, who say that this was obviously the work of an incubus, and no, not that incubus. Merlin is the boy they're looking for. Let's knife this kid and get this project going. Merlin has been sitting patiently this whole time, but interrupts them. What, he asks, is under the foundation that won't allow it to stand. The king turns around, and there's a collective gulp from the magicians. What? Really? A wall keeps falling down, and your first and only solution is to kill a child? You haven't even looked under it to try to figure out what's going on? Merlin interrupts the king, telling him to command his workmen to dig, and he'll find a pond. Because actually trying to solve a problem is way more logical than blindly prescribing child sacrifice, the king follows Merlin's advice. They're all standing out there when the workman digs through the ceiling of a small cavern, which contains a lake. Merlin then addresses the magicians, insulting them and begging them to tell him what's underneath the pond. They're sweating. Dirt? Rocks? Probably more water? Merlin huffs and tells the king to command that the pond be drained. Normally the king would not be so willing to take orders from a child, but this Merlin spoke with authority. He tells the king that when the pond is drained, he'll find two large stones at the bottom. If you pull these stones aside, you'll find two dragons asleep in the earth. Merlin knows that this is the spot at which a legendary story took place a long time ago. It comes from a Welsh tale about a king who saved the land from three plagues. His name was Lud. He was the king over all of Britain after his father, and his brother ruled France. He was supposedly the founder of London before all of his problems started. The first plague was a race of people that showed up on the island, called the Corinians. They were dwarfish people who have such great hearing that you can't get anywhere near them or plot against them. They literally hear any word the wind touches. They're said to deal in fairy money, meaning that their money looked like gold, but if you kept it a couple of days, then it turned to fungus. I'm guessing they were antagonistic invaders or something, and not just another race that showed up, but the story doesn't really say that. So maybe Lud and the Britons were just super racist. The second plague was a shrieking from the sky that could be heard in every home in Britain on May Day. The shrieking would cause men to lose all courage and strength, pregnant women to miscarry, and other people to lose their senses, and it would leave the earth barren. The third plague was that no matter how much food Lud stored, if it wasn't consumed in the first night after it was placed there, it would be gone. No one knew why. Well, Lud's brother is very smart, and he knows the solution to each of these problems. For the first, they construct a long brass tube that they talk through to keep the wind from touching the words and carrying them to the Corinians. The brother knows of a certain insect that is poisonous to the Corinians, but not the Britons, so all Lud needs to do is invite all the Corinians and all the Britons to a peace talk. Throw the mixture over them, 
and it would instantly kill all the Carinians. And he did that. Yep, everyone celebrated the king just exterminating a whole race, essentially committing genocide, after he lured everyone to a peace summit. And he was the good king. I'll skip the second for now, because that's the most relevant to our story. But for the third problem, the brother told him that everyone was put to sleep by a mighty magician who would come in and steal all the food. Of course. So all Lud needed to do was prop his chair up over a vat of water. That way, when he fell asleep, he would fall down into the water and wake up, Inception style. That night, he did it, and was shocked awake by the water. Emerging from the vat, he sees a giant magician in heavy armor, stuffing the food into a basket. The basket is normal-sized, but the magician is able to stuff the whole of the king's feast in it, having enchanted it into what is essentially a bag of holding. Lug confronts the man, and somehow bests him in grappling, despite the man's armor, size, and the, quote, glittering fire that came from his arms. The magician stays on Lud's court, and he's super loyal. As for the second problem, the shrieking, Lud's brother tells him that there are two dragons— the red dragon is native to Britain, and the white dragon is a foreign, invading dragon. They're constantly fighting, and every May, the dragon shrieks in frustration, causing all the problems. Lud is advised to measure out the island of Britain and find the center, which turns out to be Oxford. And if you look at a map, it's not the center at all, but whatever. Lud digs a huge pit, and in it he places a cauldron. He fills the massive cauldron with mead, Honey wine, which as an aside is actually really good if that's your thing, and covers it with a satin blanket. Then he waits. He can hear the dragons battling overhead, and then he sees two pigs drop. Because, as we all know, when dragons get tired, they transform into pigs and immediately drop from the sky from exhaustion, and also being pigs. They hit the mead, and since they're so thirsty, they drink it all up. Like anyone would be after drinking like eight times their weight in alcohol, they get really sleepy as they transform back into dragons. And yeah, no explanation at all is given as to why they became pigs. Lud's men wrap them up in the satin and take them to the sturdiest stronghold on the island, in Wales, and imprison them deep underground. Sometimes they wake up, though, and shake the stronghold, but at least there isn't any shrieking. Years pass, and the people forgot about the dragons underground. The stronghold was abandoned, and it crumbled to the ground. Still, it was a good, defensible position, and that must have been what drew Vortigern to the spot all those years later. Back to Vortigern. Either out of curiosity, or to see if the boy was really prophetic, he orders the pond drained, and the stones moved aside. As the team of workers is moving the stone, Merlin pulls his mother back from the hole. When the stones are moved, two dragons shoot up from the ground, a white one and a red one. King's court in exile is alarmed at first. Then, they see that the dragons are more interested in fighting each other, not picking off a quick meal from the ground. They watch a brutally awesome dragon fight. And, at the end, the white dragon is killed. The red dragon is wounded, but hovers in the sky, flapping over the people. They stare at each other for a moment, before the dragon flaps and flies up, roaring one last time before disappearing into the clouds, leaving the white dragon's corpse there. They hold their collective breaths for a minute, waiting to see if it will plummet down from the clouds for a snack. But no, it appears to be gone. As for the white dragon, well, they're still a few years away from the story of Sigurd, episode 3D, so I guess they don't realize that they can drink the blood and be able to talk to birds, which is a missed opportunity. 
everything calms down and Merlin launches into a very, very, very long prophecy, only marginally related to the immediate story at hand. There's a lot written on this, and it alludes to both details that will come up in later episodes, as well as politics at the time of writing in the 12th century. But I largely won't be talking about the prophecy, other than one key point, that the white dragon represents the Saxon invaders, and the red dragon represents the native Britons. Also in the prophecy, Arthur represents a boar, but that's neither here nor there. They stay there for some time, with Merlin and his mother being accepted into the king's household. Vortigern consulted with the boy regularly, and ordered the scribes to write down his prophecies. Finally, Vortigern asks Merlin the question. The question anybody would want to ask a prophet. It's the question he's feared since murdering two people to take the throne. The question he's done everything with the Saxons to try to put off. He asks Merlin how he will die. Merlin took a long sigh. He knew this was coming. He tells Vortigern that the man needs to run from the fire of Ambrosius and Uther, the sons of Constantine. They've already set off from Brittany and will invade the Saxon nation soon. Their goal is ultimately to expel the Saxons, but they really want to take revenge on Vortigern. They've spent their entire childhood in exile, fearing hired knives in the night or Vortigern landing an army in the daytime to finally end the rightful king's line. They want to take back their kingdom, yes, but on a much more personal level, they want to make Vortigern hurt. Merlin tells Vortigern that he doesn't know exactly when it will happen, how the armies will line up, or when they will attack, just that it will happen. Sorry. Trembling, the king orders the building of the tower halted, and they flee to a modest, yet defensible castle nearby. If you're wondering why they didn't just do that in the first place instead of trying to build a completely new tower with a foreign army occupying their lands, well, so am I. If there are any students of literature or history that have studied this and have an idea, please let me know. Meaty Merlin is worth it, though, and we wouldn't have the episode with him and Vortigern had it not been for the tower. They're settled in the castle, and the next day they receive word from the scouts that the sons of Constantine have landed on the island, and that all the Britons are rising up with their rightful king, and are attacking the Saxons in the streets. Vortigern figures, though, that he has time to prepare a defense. They wouldn't bypass the Saxons, and leave a dangerous force behind them just to punish Vortigern. The next morning, they see more scouts riding toward the keep at full gallop. The sons of Constantine did just that. They left a reasonably sized guard behind them to keep the Saxons at bay, but they wanted revenge on Vortigern first. It also helped that the Saxons were now dealing with revolts all around the island, with the sons of those nobles they murdered last episode finally having a population that would fight for them. There's chaos in the city where Vortigern's hold up. Some of the peasants are fleeing to the countryside, not to be caught up in this war that has nothing to do with them. Some soldiers are riding to Vortigern's cause. The gates open to allow a few more carts with provisions for the inevitable siege and no one notices two peasants slip out among the throng. One is a woman, who looks like a nun from a nearby monastery, and the other looks like that serious, intelligent boy that has been seen in the company of the king. She looks back at the city as the gates close, leaving them, once again, traveling alone through the Welsh highlands. He doesn't look back. He can see the flames that are not yet there. The people, to him, are already dead. He's looking forward to a world that will be forever changed by his actions. Merlin pulls the cloak over his head. The pair slips off into the forest, safe in the wilderness. 
That evening, the army of Aurelius arrives and surrounds the city, with Uther having stayed back. The watchmen on the walls can see campfires of the soldiers igniting in the night, until the darkness has been driven from the land as far as they can see. Aurelius is sitting up in his tent, reflecting on the last few days. They landed in the country, and after the Saxon menace had been driven from where they landed, the clergy came and anointed him king. He knew it was his duty to expel the Saxons, but he wanted nothing more than to, I quote, sheathe his sword in Vortigern's bowels. It was his opinion that the Pictish assassin that murdered his father was sent by Vortigern, an opinion that's shared by nearly everyone on the island. Vortigern had recommended the man for service in Constantine's household, and he had been the sole beneficiary of the assassination. To wit, we don't ever get anything resembling a confession from Vortigern, even privately, that it was him. But it was definitely him. Many authors confirm this, and it makes complete sense with everything we know of the man. Sorry to ruin the mystery. The next day, they wheel the siege engines out and attack, but they can't seem to take the castle. Days pass, and still, it's not working. They can't bribe someone to open the gate, as was common in sieges, as the people with Vortigern were those that had chosen to stay with the exiled, extremely unpopular king, and they were fiercely loyal. Besides, Vortigern didn't have to outlast months of a siege, only the days it would require for the Saxons to overcome whatever nominal force Aurelius had left behind him. Proving once again that the enemy of his enemy can be his friend in incredibly specific and in continually shifting circumstances, Vortigern just needs to sit and wait. Aurelius knew this too, though, and unlike Vortigern, he could make difficult choices. As much as he wanted to personally end Vortigern, he needed to deal with the Saxons before they caught up to him. He ordered a warning issued to the city. He said that that afternoon, if they didn't open the gates, they would use torches, archers, and siege engines to set fire to the castle, and would not relent until it, and everyone inside, was ash. Hours passed, and the gates wouldn't open. It was all a ruse, a trick, Vortigern thought. He wouldn't needlessly kill hundreds of people in addition to denying his soldiers any plunder from the castle or city. In addition, there wouldn't be any way to control it from spreading to the surrounding town and forest. Aurelius would be reviled. He was wrong, though. It wasn't a ruse. And that afternoon, fires broke out all over the keep. Catapults rained down oil-soaked, flaming logs. Rank upon rank of archers shot flaming arrows. Soldiers piled fuel by the wall and lit the piles with torches. Aurelius' army captured or killed anyone who ran out, but they didn't see Vortigern. The castle burned for two full days before the fire subsided. Vortigern had been right, too, and the Britons were unable to control the fire before it consumed the entire town. Aurelius considered it with a heavy heart, though compared to the destruction that had passed and the destruction still to come, it would hardly be remembered. Aurelius poked corpse after charred corpse, each nearly exactly the same as the last. The treacherous old king and what family he had taken with him into exile were here. He was sure of it, but which ashen corpse they were was known only to God. It was small consolation. The man was dead, sure, but Aurelius didn't get to experience it, and that provided only the scantest amount of closure. He would have to spend the rest of his time, gold, and the lives of his men undoing whatever of Vortigern's damage as he could. Tomorrow they would ride east, and finally see the end of the Saxons in Great Britain. Next week, Aurelius does not see the end of the Saxons in Great Britain. He 
He never does, nor does his successor, his brother, Uther. They're pretty much here to stay at this point. And though it's two episodes late, next time we'll finally meet Arthur, by way of scumbag Uther's trickery. I want to thank Jason M. Grenier, Aethrafall, Tamalus, Clabotterman Fairwhite, and Jarbo Common. Let me know if I said any of those right for the reviews on iTunes, and Tamalus for the longer comment on the site. If you have time, I would totally appreciate a review on iTunes. If you have corrections, feedback, or thoughts for future shows, you can contact me on the site or on Twitter at MythPodcast. Links to all those are in the show notes. Also, I've started posting the transcripts to the episodes each week, with pictures where they're available. And with the Arthurian legends, there will be a lot of pictures. The creature this week is the Quiquern, or Quiquion, or Kilut. Yeah. And as I seem to be saying almost constantly, I know those are not pronounced correctly. The Qs don't even have Us after them, so I'm in unknown territory. It's from Inuit mythology. This is a giant, bald dog that stalks the woods and terrifies people. It only has hair on its feet, ears, and on the tip of its tail. And it's also said to be outrageously stupid. People are said to be terrified of them, though I can't figure out why. It's a big dog, yes, but as it turns out, they are as scared of humans as humans are of them. Apparently, if you see it, though, you have a few moments before you start having a seizure. I read that while you're experiencing a seizure, it could then eat you, but I've also read of it just getting scared and running off. If you can manage a shout before you have a seizure, there is a way to scare it off. Just say it's incredibly difficult to pronounce name. As you can probably tell, I would be in big trouble. Also, there are about eight different spellings and pronunciations out there, so if they weren't so dumb, I would think that they're flooding the internet with misinformation so that people don't know their real name and thus can't scare them off. There are stories of them chasing humans, humans chasing them, both getting each other lost in the woods, and both chasing each other at various times. All you need is a haunted house, a hallway full of doors, and some music, and you have one of those Scooby-Doo chase scenes where the monster is chasing Scooby and the gang, Scooby's chasing the monsters, and for some reason Don Knotts and the Harlem Globetrotters show up. Thanks so much for listening. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by the gallant Steve Combs. Other music credits are linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.